Hello, and welcome to Parkinson's Pathway Pals Tuesdays with Teresa. I'm Teresa Jackson, your podcast host. Today, my guest is Sarah Whittingham. Dr. Sarah Whittingham is an Air Force veteran and anesthesiologist at Cleveland Clinic Marymount Hospital and clinical faculty member at Northeast Ohio Medical University. Dr. Whittingham traveled the world caring for fellow service members and patients and in night, excuse me, in November 2020, at the age of 46, her life took an unexpected turn when she was diagnosed with young onset Parkinson's disease. Three years post-diagnosis, Sarah won a chance to compete at the 2023 Ironman World Championship in Kona, Hawaii. She used this opportunity to raise awareness about Parkinson's and how exercise can help people living with Parkinson's live a full life. Dr. Winningham, thank you for um, sharing your time and your story today, and we want to start off by thanking you for your service. Thank you, Teresa. Appreciate that. So I read about your journey. I've watched your journey even before you uh, did your Ironman. It's extremely inspiring, and I'm just so privileged to and honored to be able to help share your story. So thank you for that. Um, As I was reading and following along on your journey, I read that the way this started for you was that you noticed that you had this, you or your husband or both noticed that you had an arm tremor and it was kind of a weird thing at age 46 for your arm to kind of be doing its own thing. Um, And you also noticed some stiffness when you walked downstairs. Can you share how those symptoms actually led to a diagnosis for you? Yes. So the thing that, you know, I, really raised the red flags was the tremor in my arm. Um, and then, you know, like, even though I'm a doctor, I still get on Google and said, you know, unilateral resting arm tremor. And, you know, it was one thing about Parkinson's about another. And, you know, I went to medical school and I, but I didn't really put together all the other weird things that had been happening over the previous five or six years until I started learning more about Parkinson's disease. And once I did that, I realized that, you know, the stiffness I'd been having, the you know, trailing off of my speech, um, things that had been, my husband had been noticing over the previous several years, I just blew off to getting older or, you know, whatever, um, was all related to Parkinson's disease. But it wasn't until the tremor that, you know, the red flags started going up and, you know, led me to talk to a neurologist. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, a lot of times, especially for young onset, all those symptoms are separate until they're not. Right. And it's like adding an ingredient to making a cake and all of a sudden it, it looks very different when you get all the ingredients together. I know when I was diagnosed, I was 55, but still my movement disorder specialist um, considered me young onset because of how long I had had symptoms. But by the time I got to the uh, physician, I worked in a building, um, in a medical building, and I was on the fourth floor or the third floor. And I would go up and down all day long for meetings. And I remember leaving work one day and people just passing me, you know, down the stairs, I always took the stairs and I right. literally couldn't go any faster. It's like my legs were so weak. And I thought, if this building catches on fire, I'm going to, I'm not going to make it out. <laughs> and that's, yeah. what, that's actually what took me to the doctor was just realizing that this may be more than just a series of, gosh, I need to work out a little harder. I've let myself, you know, life get in the way and. And right, not, right. not doing that. So it's interesting how those those symptoms are separate until they're not. Um, I think the population at large, you mentioned your physicians, I'm a physician and I've shared that you're a physician, but I think the population at large 
just really assumes that all healthcare workers know everything about every disease. When in fact, no matter how long your medical school is, there, there's only so much about certain things. And then it becomes more niche. People do fellowships and they, they learn how to do anesthesiology uh, or cardiac anesthesiology or whatever your specialty is or orthopedics or maybe you're a neurologist and you go on to be a movement disorder specialist. But unless you go down those trails, um, there's really not any way to be an expert in that area. And it's surprising when, you know, that people um, assume that physicians or maybe an RN that's at bedside for somebody that's been admitted um, know all things about all diseases. Um, yeah. Sharing what your medical education was around Parkinson's or if you remember yeah, no, I mean, I think, and I think an interesting thing to point out here is, I mean, I went to medical school, I graduated from medical school 21 years ago. And you think of how much we've learned about Parkinson's since I graduated from medical school. I mean, like I said, it was 20 years ago, so I don't remember exactly every detail that I learned. But sure. I mean, in my mind, I think of, you know, before I was diagnosed and started to learn more, you know, I, I my picture, my brain was the one that you see in on the Wikipedia, Wikipedia page of the crunched over old man shuffling mm -hmm. about. Um, and you treat it with cinnamon. I mean, that's basically what I remember from medical school about Parkinson's. And so medical students, you know, get exposure to a lot of different diseases and learn about the disease processes. I mean, I remember, you know, learning that, you know, it's caused by death of dopamine producing cells in the substantia nigra. I mean, they, we knew that and that's about the extent of it. But um, it, it goes to show how much research has come, how far research has come in the past 20 years and how much more we know about the disease now than we did. 20 years ago, as far as, you know, different medications that, you know, have been around forever to treat other conditions that turn out to help with Parkinson's disease, for example, like amantadine, which is an antiviral medication is very, can be effect, an effective adjunct to some of the other um, Parkinson's medications. So I think, um, you know, in, all physicians get some exposure to, you know, all the disease processes, but, you know, we, as a medical student, if you're not interested in being a neurologist, you're only going to do one month, a one month neurology rotation, your third year in medical school. And depending on who you rotate with, you know, if you're doing inpatient or outpatient, you may not, you may see one or two patients with Parkinson's at, you know, either, you know, early stage or advanced stage, but, you know, not enough to really get the whole big picture, but enough to kind of recognize it and, um, but not, but all, not all the nuances. And so, you know, people who go on to family practice will, will get more, a little bit more exposure, but not to the degree a neurologist might. And so it's, you know, it's something that, you know, I think is important in raising awareness, um, about exercise, you know, to all physicians, because I think, um, you know, I, I actually had one, one older primary care doctor tell me early on that I probably shouldn't be running anymore because I might fall and hurt myself. And so I, you know, I, at, at that point, I was already a little aware about the exercise part of it and said, no, actually, it looks like exercise is a really good thing. <laughs> He's like, oh, really? I didn't know that. But, yeah. you know, trying to get the word out because, you know, we have learned so much about this disease um, in the last 20 years that, um, and, you know, medicine's like it's constantly evolving and changing field as we learn more. Yeah, exercise is huge. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into your Ironman um, and how you, you know, manage part of your Parkinson's. And, and, you know, mm -hmm. exercise really is, is part of your medication re regimen as far as or your prescription to, to live well. And it really is, when you think about diet and exercise, it's for everything. If you have cancer, quit eating sugar. You know, if yeah. you, you know, no matter what, if you're overweight, quit eating sugar, exercise, it's kind of 
um, just to living well in general, it's important. Um, but I, I want to stop for a second and, and talk about vitamins and nutrition. There are some, some beliefs out there that I've read about, and I always stay away. I try to just do scholarly. I'm looking at the National Institute of Health or Cleveland Clinic or Mayo Clinic, you know, to glean or Parkinson's Foundation, Michael J. Fox, et cetera to glean information from, but um, there are some thoughts that vitamin deficiencies, which can create neurological issues, type issues, um, can be used before we start using levodopa, carbidopa. And I, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about cutting out, you know, dairy altogether um, because it causes inflammation, I would like, from a physician standpoint, and also <laughs> someone now that has been diagnosed with Parkinson's, yeah. what are your thoughts around that? Well, I'm probably not, I'm not really an expert on nutrition, um, but I, I, I kind of go with the mindset that a balanced diet of every everything is probably the best. And it's interesting to me, like how our body tends to crave what it needs. Like when I go through periods of time where I don't end up not eating a lot of meat or protein, I like all of a sudden start craving a big steak. And I, I don't, I, I think, you know, listening to our bodies is, is an important part of it. And I, I don't think that eliminating completely some one particular thing, unless you have a medical reason to like celiac disease where you, right. you know, have reactions to something. Um, and, you know, I'm not a huge expert on, you know, really nutrition and Parkinson's other than knowing that, you know, taking protein about the same time as your cinnamon is probably not a good idea because it, it delays it. It can inhibit the absorption of it. Yeah. But, um, you know, as far as, you know, inflammation and all of that nutrition, that, it's not really my area of expertise, but I, I mean, I try to eat a balanced diet try, and I, 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 I do have, a, I'm a little bit of a sugar addict, so I try to limit what I can, but I, um, yeah, it's you know, hard sometimes. I, you know, try to eat as, as well as I can and, and with as many diverse types of foods, I think, the better, bigger variety of, of things, you know, eventually your body will get what it needs. And, you know, our bodies are pretty amazing as far as, you know, taking in what they need and getting rid of what they don't. And yeah, um, it's probably an oversimplified version of things. No, but. no, actually my thought on it, I wanted to hear from a medical and a, and a, someone living with Parkinson's, what you, your thoughts were around that. But my thoughts are, you know, we need to keep ourselves educated and as we read something, those are good things to take in to your next visit with your movement disorder specialist and say, hey, I read this. This is the source. What are your thoughts about this? Mm -hmm. And even though they too are not necessarily nutritionists, the movement disorder specialists have seen hundreds, if not thousands of patients with Parkinson's. So yeah. they probably um, have seen different types of um, things that affect our overall well-being. And so I just wondered what your your viewpoint. Yeah. I want to pivot for a second and um, go back to in three years ago when you received that diagnosis. For me personally, I went through a grieving process and I recognized that I was going through a grieving process. And really that work between thinking what I thought I was going to have at this age versus what I think my reality is now is what was so hard. And I think even if you somewhat have accepted your diagnosis, you may kind of have days that aren't so good that you grieve losses of certain things, but mm -hmm. I think you can have, you know, a, a, a good life with Parkinson's if you take care of yourself and you align yourself with a good physician, et cetera, the, the team. Um, 
just if you don't mind, if you'd share your own experience um, and how if you went through a grieving process. And, oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, how did you manage that? Yeah. So, I mean, I, and I, you know, I didn't realize for a few months that I was going through the stages of grief, but, you know, you, we all have an idea of what our future is going to look like. You know, we think, oh, I'm going to retire about this age and I'm going to go travel the world and I'm going to do this. And, you know, the diagnosis of Parkinson's kind of, that all went away in my mind, like all of, all of these plans that I had made died. And so I kind of look, feel like I was grieving the loss of the future that I had been planning. And, um, you know, so, you know, you kind of go through the initial stages, like denial, oh, this can't, can't beat this. Maybe it's something else, you know, I think, oh, maybe it's Lyme disease or maybe I just need some antibiotics and it'll go away. Or, you know, it's, you know, start thinking of other things. Are are you sure? You know, and so I went through that stage and then, you know, you know, angry and depressed and, you know, eventually you come to acceptance and, and, and come with a plan to move forward. And, you know, I, for me, um, listening to Michael J. Fox's audio books was super helpful. And, you know, his, his attitude and positive attitude through all of this, um, I find very inspiring, um, because he's turned something, he did an amazing job of turning something that, you know, is devastating into something incredibly positive. And, you know, he's given so much meaning to his life and purpose and something that will make him immortal, you know, in, Mm -hmm. in all of our minds. And so, you know, finding, finding that and, you know, finding a, you know, a new, you know, planning a new future and something that, you know, I, I feel like my life has a lot more meaning now than it would have without Parkinson's because I'm able to help other people in a way that I hadn't been able to um, before. Um, And, you know, even as a physician, you know, my neurologist said, you're probably helping more people and saving more lives by sharing your story with Parkinson's than you have as a physician the rest of your career. And, you know, I think there's probably some truth to that. And I think that to me, that's very important to find another meaning and another purpose, um, you know, for my future. And, you know, none of us know what our future is going to hold, but I think finding a positive uh, outlet and, and, and a way to help other people um, can, can make a difference and, you know, helps me, you know, get up in the morning and motivates me to do my best. I'm hoping to inspire other people to do the same. You know, I, I think from everything I've read, the research really shows that, um, having hope and having purpose in life is really an indicator for outcome in not just longevity, but in the quality of our lives. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I think a, a huge part of that is, is focusing on the positive. I mean, it's so yeah. easy to focus on the things that we can't do and, you know, and, and dwell on that. But, you know, I found that that's, you know, kind of a waste of time. There's nothing I can do about that. So why even waste a second of thinking about it? Instead, yeah. you know, focus on the things to be grateful for. And, you know, I, I quote Michael J. Fox frequently, but my favorite quote from him is, you know, gratitude makes optimism sustainable. And, you know, if you can find something to be grateful for every day, then, you know, it's, it's easy to keep that positive attitude. And there's always something to be grateful for, even if it's the silliest thing you can think of, you know, you know, it's, you know, I'm grateful that my socks match. <laughs> I'm just looking at my socks, you know, it's just like silly things, even if it's, you know, the silliest things, but you know, yeah. grateful for our families and the ability to get up and exercise and to have, uh, you know, other people with Parkinson's that are friends that are, you know, can help each other out. So, I mean, there's so many things. It's a choice. I mean, we can, we can complain about having to take medication or we can be grateful that we have access to it. Right. Yeah, so for much. sure. And grateful that it works. I mean, when I kind of think I'm still in this honeymoon period of Parkinson's where, you know, I feel better now than I did probably the year before I was diagnosed because, you know, I was slow and sluggish all the time. But, you know, with medication, I'm actually feeling 
pretty, pretty, pretty good and able to do, you know, a lot of things that I, you know, wouldn't be able to do without medication. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I understand that. Um, I want to ask you about your children. I know you have children. I think you have two Mm -hmm. girls, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And um, how old were they when you were diagnosed? And um, Uh, how did, how did you tell them? um, So they were 10 and 13. And I've been pretty open with them from the beginning. Um, I, I kind of feel like, you know, they're, they're mature, they're part of the family. And, you know, even before, you know, when I had the tremor, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's Parkinson's. And, and they didn't know what it was, obviously. But, you know, and, you know, all, they were always part of the conversation um, from the beginning, um, which, you know, and we, we talked about it openly and, and never tried to hide anything from them. Um, um, so, and, and it turned, you know, and they've been very supportive um, along the way too. So I, I feel like, you know, keeping a secret from family members makes it harder for both the family and the person with Parkinson's as well. I think, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to have a family that, that is supportive, but I think, you know, that, you know, people want to help each other out. And I think by hiding, you know, keeping secrets, it, it just makes it harder um, for everybody. Yeah, I agree. Um I want to talk about start. We're going to, we're getting to your Ironman here close, but <laughs> I want to talk about. I know you um, signed up for a clinical uh, trial. I think where you did cycling. Um, mm-hmm. You want to talk about that a little bit? How you, yeah. how you got connected to it? How someone else can get connected to something different if they want things details around that? Yeah, yeah. So um, when I first saw the movement disorder specialist. Um, he gave me a list of research studies that were being done at Cleveland Clinic, um, which is where I where I saw the movement disorder specialist. And um, you know, when I first got it, I was look, kind of looked, glanced at it and thinking, "Oh my gosh, I'm like still working. I'm mom. I don't have time for any of this." And I, I kind of set it aside and you know didn't think about it for a while. Um, and I picked, I looked, you know, it caught my eye a little bit later because I noticed one of them had to do with cycling. And I was like, "Oh, you know, I used to like to cycle a lot. That might be interesting." And, um, and so, and I looked at it and I, um, recognized Jay Albert's name cause we had bumped into each other before and I, at the grocery store, it's long, that's another crazy story, but, um, and I was like, Oh, I, I know Jay, maybe I'll see if I can, um, get into that study. And so I contacted his study coordinator and, and got enrolled in the study at Cleveland clinic. Um, they, uh, randomized half the group to get an exercise bike for the year and being encouraged to ride the bike as much as possible. And the other half um, just did what they normally did. Um, and we were all given fitness trackers to track our level of fitness. And then they tested our um, Parkinson's scores halfway through. And then at the end, uh, completely off medication to see uh, as far as you know, track progression of the disease and correlate that with the amount of ex- activity that was done. And so um, for me personally, and I know that the data from that study um, is, is it's not yet been published, but is, is showing that there there was a st- strong um, correlation as far as de- prog- you know decreased progression of the disease for the people who exercised more than the ones that did not. Um, but that study is yet to be published. Um, but for me, I mean, my my personal experience, you know, I had gotten it kind of out of shape because I was tired all the time and hadn't been exercising. So when I started the study, I could barely ride 15 minutes without being out of breath and tired and it was kind of a struggle and the coordinator would call me like, you need to be writing more. You need to be writing more. I'm like, okay. Um, but you know, by three or four months into the, into the study, I realized I was feeling a lot better overall and not just when I was on the bike, but the whole day. And so 
you know, that kind of got me excited to start riding the bike more. And so throughout the course of the study, I ended up getting to the point where I was riding the bike three, to, you know, three times a week for an hour at a time, um, sometimes four times a week. And so, you know, and, and, and I was feeling better. And so that kind of kicked off the, the mindset that, you know, wow, I can, you know, a year ago, I couldn't even, you know, ride the bike for 15 minutes without being miserable. And now I can ride it for a whole hour. You know, I bet if I keep working at it, I could get back to doing triathlons, which is, you know, something that I had loved to do, you know, five, six years prior. So, um, so yeah, so that was kind of the thing that kicked off the whole get back into triathlon <laughs> mentality. So you said they measured your, um, your scores off of medication at the end. I want to make sure people out there that are listening know one way or the other, that doesn't mean that people stayed off of medication, but that they're feeling that they were, they had improvements and were feeling better. Um, can you just make sure everyone understands? Yeah. So, I mean, I still take my, my, my normal dose of medication throughout the entire study. But then just like 24 hours before this, before they tested me at the at the end, um, just to make sure that they had a, um, uh, because my medication dose changed mid-study too. So they wanted to make sure that they were, you know, comparing apples to apples, basically. Um, so for 24 hours um, at the end, before they tested me, I held my medication. Um, and then they, you know, I did all the whole, you know, all the, the finger tapping and all the tests they do yeah. to see how how advanced your Parkinson's symptoms are, um, you know, when, while I was off medication and I actually took my medication to the office and took it right after they tested me. Cause I was like, I was, it feels so much weird. better to, yeah, yeah. I understand. Yeah. But, um, I think that that's an important message that exercise is really looking at just slowing the progression, which is a big deal. If you get another year yeah. or a really quality, you know, good life or three years or five years, or you make it until they found a treatment that if you're at this stage will still be effective for you. So there's lots and lots of reasons, including just feeling better throughout the day, your right. quality of life improvement and your medicine working better, perhaps, you know, there's lots of uh, positives. Around right. And when you look at, when you look at what the biggest morbid things that causes morbidity and mortality in Parkinson's patients, it's falls and, and, and aspiration. And so by exercising, I mean, you're training your brain to react quickly to, you know, changing conditions. So uh, I don't know if anybody studied it, but in my mindset, like I, I'm less likely to fall if my core, my core strong and I've been practicing balancing exercises and I'm practicing those things every day so that if I do slip on the ice, I can move quickly enough to catch myself before I fall and break my ankle. So yeah, um, I think it probably helps reduce those problems too, which lead to a lot of morbidity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here we are. I'm going to talk about your Ironman. I cannot even begin to tell you how inspiring it almost makes me cry. And I didn't even know <laughs> I know yeah. how much work that you had to put into it, but I watched a clip um, of an interview of you on the Today Show with um, Hoda and Jenna. And when she leaned in and she said, we're in awe of you. And you are such an inspiration to so many. I wondered, you know, what what was going through your mind and um, when, what was going through your mind when they showed you that support clip of all the people. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah I was the whole experience was just surreal. So I, that they, they had made a you know, three or four minute video telling my story that I had not seen yet when I sat down to meet them. And it was a pretty emotional video that they showed. 
And they spent an entire day and a half, day and a half shooting all of that and took the most emotional three minutes of it and compressed it all together. And I had to sit there and watch it with them. And of course, <laughs> I'm like falling, falling my eyes out. And I look over and Hoda and Jenna are both crying. I was like, okay, you realize I'm going to be crying through this interview. So I'm like sitting there trying to hold it together as they're asking me questions. Um, and, and, uh, you know, trying to sound intelligent and not cry. Um, so that, I mean, that was my whole thing. I was like, don't cry. Don't look, don't look, you know, su- you know, and, and, you know, as I wipe my eyes and I was like, I'm crying too. I was like, I know, but <laughs> so, yeah, so <laughs> I, I want to hold yeah, myself I, together. Yeah, I know. I want to, I want to hold it great. together for this. So, um, but yeah, no, it was, it was a very, it was a huge opportunity to, you know, share the message of the importance of exercise with Parkinson's because, you know, for me personally, it's, it's made a huge difference. And um, I go to a Parkinson's community center uh, here in Cleveland called in motion, which is amazing. And I see people come in there, turn completely turn around people who, you know, and a lot of it's the socialize, you know, you know, people coming in socializing with other people with Parkinson's because, you know, some Mm -hmm. of the older Parkinson's patients who, you know, who don't really have a lot of social life outside of their home, be able to come to a center and interact with 20 other people, you know, on a weekly or biweekly basis is, you know, that's an effective part of it too. So, and it's seeing them, you know, you know, lighten up again, you know, have color in their face and be excited about something and be happy. You know, you see that, see the more that they exercise together, you know, just, you know, they're moving better, they're feeling better. And so, you know, I think sharing, you know, the message, you know, these park, these community centers are a huge part of, I think long-term wellness for people with Parkinson's is, you know, exercise programs and the socialization, you know, even if, even if you live in a remote area where there may not be a Parkinson's center, there's always like a water aerobics class or something that's, you know, not necessarily for Parkinson's people, but the social part of going to exercise with a group of people, I think is really helpful um, for people with Parkinson's. Yeah, I think so too. I know that you have uh, inspired countless, like you probably never even know how many people that you've inspired. But as I sat and thought about that, I thought, I wonder who inspires Dr. Sarah Whitting. <laughs> yeah, I, um, yeah, I, I thought I put some thought in that too. And I, it's probably not the answer that most people would think, but um, for me, the people that inspire me the most are our young service members who are signing up to serve our country. Um, I'm fortunate to, to be the uh, mentor for the future military physicians group at Northeast Ohio Medical University. So the doctors who, the medical students who are on military scholarship, who have agreed to go and serve as military physicians after medical school and, you know, working with them and seeing their excitement and enthusiasm of, of going out into the military to help care for our future service members. Um, I find it incredibly inspiring. Um, I had the opportunity to go to the Air Force Army football game. I'm an Air Force Academy graduate. So uh, that the service inter-service games are a very <laughs> big part of our, you know, heritage. And, you know, just seeing all the young, you know, the young cadets and their enthusiasm to, to serve our country. I, I find that incredibly inspiring. And I, and, I, and I hope that they, you know, have great careers and have as many cool stories from their services and great experiences as I did. Thank you for sharing that. That uh, that is an interesting insight, and I think it's also very inspiring. Um, I I know that you did your. Um, I'm I'm going to pivot again a little bit. I know that you did your first Ironman, or at least I think I read or heard that mm-hmm. in New Zealand. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and that was then you cool. went on to do one in Hawaii. Um, I think you have some pretty big goals. 
for 2024. And I wondered if you might share your goals and how you manage your training. Yeah. So I, I come up with some pretty crazy ideas. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I want to keep definitely keep training for triathlons. Um, I managed to get a spot, uh, qualify for the Boston Marathon in April. And um, I uh, was looking at their programming, I was thought, I was learning more about the para athlete programs. And I looks like to become classified as a para athlete, um, having hypertonia is one of the conditions. And so kind of got me on this pathway thinking, hmm, I wonder if I can get classified as a para athlete, which I don't even know that I can, but that's one of my crazy dreams is to maybe compete in the Paralympics someday um, and, and re raise awareness there. So I don't, I don't know if I'm dis considered disabled enough to, to meet the, the minimum impairment classification, but I think, you know, I would like to do that. And then also continue to do Ironmans and triathlons um, for as long, for as many years as I can. I don't know, you know, none of us know how long that's going to be, but I'm just going to keep at it. And I might, I, mean, I know I'm probably going to get slower, but um, just learn to be patient with myself and, and be grateful that I can still get out there. Yeah, that's inspiring um, and motivating. I just think, wow, to do one in a lifetime is, you know, a big <laughs> accomplishment, but to do not just more than one, but two big things like the Boston Marathon and an Iron Ironman in the same year is pretty mind boggling. <laughs> um, I know that you're still working. We talked about yes. that, just touched on that on in your bio. Um, how do you manage to keep your energy and stamina up while you're training for an Ironman, I imagine that's pretty intense. Yeah, I go to bed pretty early. That's <laughs> like, pretty kind of sad. I usually in bed by like nine o'clock uh, every night and um, and I get up early. And so I, I usually am able to get a workout in before work, um, either a swim or yoga um, to get all stretched out. Um, and then my job itself isn't super physically demanding. So I'm usually able to, you know, not come home super exhausted then I'll still have some energy though to exercise when I get home I work three to four days a week so I, you know on my longer that usually involves one long day a week and the, so those days I sometimes don't even work out at all and you know take that off that, that day off from working out so I kind of just gauge on how I feel and just try to for me that day or if I start to go for a run and I'm just not feeling it I'll Turn, it'll turn into a walk or I'll turn around and come home and, and go, just keep go moving forward. though, right? So just keep moving. So, you know, I was like, Oh, that's not going to happen today. And I'll maybe go jump on the bike for a little bit and just spin and, you know, I just do what I can do. And if it's not happening that day, it's not happening. I'll find something else to do. So yeah. Yeah. Just be patient with myself is the kind of the big difference since being diagnosed with Parkinson's. Yeah. I think that grace or that patience with ourselves is a big thing to realize and, and not the all or nothing mentality. Like if it didn't happen in today, I'm going to get up and try again tomorrow. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't dwell on it. I was like, oh, my, my calf's super sore today and it's not really working very well. I'll go, you know, stretch out, do some yoga. Maybe it'll feel better tomorrow. Maybe it won't. If it doesn't, I'll jump on the bike and do something else. So, yeah. 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 Um, so recently the House passed the National Plan to End Parkinson's Act. I'm sure you're aware mm -hmm. of that. It moves on now to the Senate. And if it passes, how do you think this will help with the development of treatment options? um for parkinson's disease or even you know hopes for a cure 
I mean, I, I think the more funding and research, you know, the closer we get to a cure. I mean, we've learned so much about the disease from, you know, markers and to the disease process, what's happening, you know, with how the proteins fold that lead to the cell death. And so I think, you know, the more we learn, the closer we get to a cure. It's obviously not a simple solution. Otherwise, somebody would have come up with it by now. So, right. I mean, it's going to require money. And of course, in a little bit of luck, you know, somebody, you know, the right person having the right light bulb go off in their brain when they see something of a way to, to stop that progression from happening. So um, I'm hopeful that, you know, there may be a cure at some point, um, but I am going to live my life with, you know, just try to do the best I can every day and try to stay as fit and active as I can and um, hope for the best. But you know, yeah, I, it's, it, it's impossible to say it's the, the right person having the right idea at the right time and with the right yeah. information. So raising awareness around that just to bring like you said that you know it takes money to do research and to continue in that vein I think is important not for me not so much an expectation of a cure although you know we'd all love that right but the mm -hmm. hope of better treatments and eventually you know maybe figuring out how to prevent this disease from right exactly that we love is important to me um I would like to talk just a minute about care models. I know that that's something that you are also, I think, interested in. And mm -hmm. I used to work several years ago when I was in North Carolina. I worked for a hospital. It was a community hospital. It wasn't an academic uh, teaching hospital. But they had a model that was a multidisciplinary model. The patient came in and the patient was seen by every uh, modality that or discipline that they needed to be seen by that day. And I think that for the most part, at least what I'm aware of, there's probably models out there that I'm not aware of, obviously, but um, seeking care and getting your movement disorder specialist along with anyone else that you might need, whether it's occupational or speech or whoever, um, are pretty, pretty slender. So I'd like to talk about what your thoughts are around that and any work that you might may or may not be doing around that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think having you know the, the parkinson's care team is you know something that you know a lot of books talk about but something that you don't really see around a lot and so you know i northeast ohio medical university is starting to work with some of the local hospitals to try to, to develop something on their campus where they can have a primary care doc a neurologist physical therapy occupational therapy um, and exercise classes kind of on all one central location um, for parkinson's patients um, and I think, you know, and, and then moving on to help with other chronic diseases as well, you know, because it's not just Parkinson's patients that benefit from that model, but other chronic disease processes as well. So I think, you know, having a, a place where people can, can get all of that set up because you know, coordinating doctor's appointments is a full time, <laughs> almost can be a full time job if you, you know, if you yeah. have a couple of medical problems. So you know, try to get the physical, you know, if, you, if you're going to physical therapy or occupational therapy to, or speech therapy, um, all of those, to be able to coordinate all of that with through one central place um, in conjunction with, you know, maybe support groups and things like that for, for patients and their caregivers too, in one place too, I think is, it would be really helpful and, and, and may in the end help bring the cost of healthcare down because people aren't, um, are getting the care they to need up front. And, and... Right. They're not getting repeat st studies and they're staying healthier. I mean, the, the, you know, if you're not falling and having to go get ankle surgery, you know, and you're exercising, you're costing the healthcare system less. So by helping these people, you know, stay out of the hospital by, you know, exercising and, you know, the swallow, you know, speech and swallow, you know, can people who have 
difficulty swallowing or higher risk for aspiration and getting pneumonias that can land them in the ICU. So those programs to help prevent those problems, I think, you know, in the end could potentially save a lot of money. Um, and so getting, you know, that, that mindset of, you know, what can we do to keep Parkinson's patients healthy for as long as possible is, is a very useful model. Yeah, the cost of treating Parkinson's patients or people living with Parkinson's uh, per year is astounding. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've read the the study yeah. that was out there around that. And the number that was quoted was just, uh, it's mind boggling. It's like $52 billion. It was just like, yeah, and it's going to keep climbing, you know, it's, you know, you know, people technology aging. is a great thing, but it's not inexpensive, you know, right. So. Right. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time today. I, um, I want to make sure if there's anything else that you would like to share that I haven't asked you about, mm -hmm. I'd like for you to take this time and please feel free to talk about whatever I might yeah. have. So, so, so one of the other things that I'm raising awareness for besides exercise is the impact that, um, that Parkinson's is having on young veterans. Um, so in the United States, we have, um, you know, so there are over uh, 4 million post 9-11 veterans. And of those, um, the incidence of Parkinson's is substantially higher than the rest of the population. I'm still working with the VA to get numbers. But the current policy, they don't have access, a lot, many of them don't have access to VA care or VA disability. So I'm working with the VA and starting to work with my congressman to try to change those policies and, and to, to get support for those veterans that, that are going to need care as they get older. So. I think, awesome. I think that's awesome. I think that's awesome. And, you know, I know that it's going to be needed. It's needed now. It's only that need yeah. is only going to continue to climb, as you mentioned, um, if not met. So, yeah, I, I think that's wonderful. Well, Sarah, thank you for thank you, sharing your story today. And I want to thank my listeners and I'll see you Tuesday.